Hey, it's your death sentence this week. Uh, we got a really cool interview coming up with a very smart lady named Margaret Kiljoy. Uh, she's done a couple of books on tour. Um, they're really good, and we'll talk about them. Uh, and a bunch of other books, fiction, non-fiction, steampunk, crafting, zines, uh, ton- really good music. Uh, there's like She has two musical projects. They're both amazing. We'll be playing them both. Um, really good, so watch out for that. And uh, yeah, some housekeeping. Um, like and subscribe to this show. It helps. Uh, you can also give me a good review on uh, the iTunes and um, if you do that then potentially I could like rise up the ranks in um, iTunes's literature section get up there with like um, Night Vale and uh, the New York Times and um, wouldn't it be funny if I was an e-celeb like like if I had like 40,000 followers and a verified mark wouldn't that be kind of hilarious you know kind of a King Ralph kind of way. I don't know why King Ralph was the first reference I went for for there. Like maybe Pygmalion? Is that a relevant reference? Probably not. Uh, but anyway, it'd be hilarious if I was uh, famous, even internet famous. So um, support that. It'll eventually lead to me saying something really terrible. Like I, I will like say the N word. Like properly, I won't even say the N word. It will be like you know, the N word. It'll be terrible, and it'll destroy me, and it'll, it'll just be funny for everyone. So, yeah, get those hearts going, smash that subscribe button, and um, stick around because there's music. And uh, come back next week, which I'll have a very special guest, another very special guest, and then. The following week, another very special guest. So, you know, I just I'm I'm giving all of this to you. You just got to give me uh, the like sanity destroying um, effect of fame, even internet fame. You just got to like completely annihilate my consciousness through attention. That's all I ask. Oh, and also, uh, this was recorded on a phone, so the sound quality is shit. Yeah, terrible. Absolutely unlistenable. Uh, If you care about that stuff, then don't. Here's a theme song. Um, like 
done. Uh, so yeah, and plus I I, don't, I dig your music, and I never actually knew that you are also Femi Nazgul. So <laughs> yeah, I wanted to um, yeah, I wanted to get you on the show and talk about because it it's kind of super in yeah, my wheelhouse. Uh, so let let's start with the with the basics. Um, maybe just talk about like your biography, your early life, um, where you're from, how do you how you got started. Sure. Um, I was, you know, a disaffected suburban kid growing up uh, outside D.C. and uh, kind of made art as an escape. And I did a lot of really bad noise and electronic music um, when I was a teenager in the 90s um, and really bad cyberpunk writing. Those were two of the things that I spent a lot of my high school time doing. And... uh, and then I kind of set both of those aside for a while. Um, when I was 19, I discovered anarchism and decided to drop out of art school to, you know, try to overthrow the government and, and end capitalism. Oh, and I wasn't very that. good at that, uh, or at least I didn't succeed at that. And so I, but I, I kept at that for a long time and I, I kind of became a traveler. And then I would just kind of, I would travel around to different activist projects to go be at the front lines of various demonstrations and social movements and things like that. Uh, and then at some point in order to sort of continue doing that, but actually start working on my own projects, I finally got myself a laptop and then, you know, started making, started writing again. I wrote a little bit. I used to handwrite a lot of, uh, when I would travel, I would handwrite comics. Uh, I did a comic called the super happy narco fun pages for a while. And, but then basically I, I finally got myself a computer and then I would travel with an accordion and the computer and play accordion to make money and then um, use the computer to basically make the, the sort of art I cared about and got back into making electronic music. Uh, it was actually kind of funny. I would, I would preview, I would write most of the songs on accordion and then transpose them over to synthesizers on a computer. Oh, and um, I released a couple albums under old project names and had a couple, you know, I, let's see, I had a band called, I had a project called Attack, 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 and then I had a project called Wings Are, and then I was in this metal band called The Illowen, or maybe just Illowen. I don't know. I just have been doing projects like that for a long time. I finally started taking my writing more seriously about 10 years ago and started publishing books, uh, first just through anarchist presses, and now I also work with mainstream presses um, because it, it has a wider reach and because it pays more. Um, but it, it's it been nice. I haven't had to change what I write about in order to do that. Cool. So what's your life like nowadays? Are you still on the road? Do you settle down or, or what? I, uh, I've been making myself settle down about two years ago after um, 13 years or something on the road. I, I moved to Western North Carolina, right outside of Asheville. And it's been very good for my anxiety to live in one place. And it's been pretty good for my artistic output, but I'm not sure whether it's good for me personally or not. Uh, there was a lot, there was a lot to be said about traveling. Uh, and I, I miss it sometimes. Actually, you just ca- caught me on a day where I, I miss it more than usual. Uh, I managed to conquer most of my wanderlust about a year ago, but it's it's coming back right now. Yeah, I, 
do exactly the same thing, but I've moved around a lot in my life, and it's uh, finally settled down, yeah. and it's, yeah, I'm getting itchy feet. We can definitely have yeah. advice to that. Um, but who, when you were growing up, and I guess even nowadays, what, what were you reading? Like, what, who inspired you? When I was younger, I read uh, just fantasy and science fiction. Um, I, I actually read a sort of embarrassing amount of Heinlein, who's not a particularly progressive author. Um, no. He's kind of all over the map politically, but you mostly put him somewhere in kind of a libertarian camp. Yeah. Um, I read a lot of Heinlein in middle school and then uh, and a lot of fantasy books. Uh, one of the books that I say that I kind of like owe the most to is the the Song of the Lioness series um, by Tamora Pierce, which is about a a girl who uh, runs away and cross dresses and becomes a knight. And I read that book when I was in fifth grade, and you know, depending on where my gender identity has been, I've either been like, see, I was always going to be a cross dressing knight, or now that I actually identify as a trans woman, I was like, see, I was always going to be a woman knight, um, and because I've been you know, I've only been out as trans for about a year and a half now, but I've been named Margaret and wearing women's clothes and things like that for more than a decade for most of my adult life. Um, and then I went to this period in high school where I just like only read pretentious literature. And some of those books are actually still, I'm not trying to like widely talk trash on the, on the genre of, you know, dead European men, but I read a lot of uh, uh, Milan Kundera and, um, uh, Herman Hess and things like that. And those were kind of my favorites throughout high school. But, but then I, I, um, once my own life became really adventurous, I actually kind of needed adventure fiction again in a way that I didn't really expect. I would have thought, you know, Oh, now that my life is adventurous. Like, like I used to sort of joke, like, Oh, I used to read books about thieves or play D and D and have a character who picks locks. And now I just like literally pick locks, you know, um, I'm not very good at that, but you know, for a long time, I, I, uh, let's say made my living by, you know, breaking into dumpsters and, and eating trash. And, um, and my life was an adventure. And, but then at some point I realized I actually needed to read adventure books because it calmed me down. It, I got to have the adventure without it actually like, being a physical danger to me all the time. Um, and uh, so that's actually kind of how I got back into uh, fantasy in particular. And and then I also started more and more realizing that I liked what can be said politically and thematically through genre fiction. Uh, you know, I had this moment when I was a kid, I never actually read Lord of the Rings. I read The Hobbit over and over again, but I never actually read Lord of the Rings. I finally read Lord of the Rings a, a good while ago now, but as part of a, a forest defense camp in the Pacific Northwest, and I was doing scouting to make sure the police didn't raid our camp. And so, or not scouting, um, sentry. I was basically a sentry, and I stayed up all night reading Lord of the Rings behind a log and waited to see if, you know, big SUVs drove by, and if they did, I chased them. And and it was like the right atmosphere to read Lord of the Rings and to read this parable about power. And Lord of the Rings, is, there's a lot to be critiqued there, especially along race lines and xenophobia lines. But it it is also fundamental, this, this parable about the need to destroy power and to not wield power. 
Um, and, and so that's kind of how I got back into fantasy. Yeah. Cool. And um, so that's kind of brought you to Danielle Kane. Um, well, it brought you to a bunch of other books, nonfiction and fiction first. Um, actually, why don't we why don't we give uh, a little little talk about them? Because you've done some real interesting projects in the past. Like a there was a choose your own adventure book, right? And um, uh, it's legally distinct from choose your own adventure. It is an adventure of your own choosing. Yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no way related to that uh, proto video game that we all loved in our childhoods. They actually sent me a uh, a cease and desist letter. Oh, wow. Uh, choose Co LLC. Um, Fortunately, on the cover of the book, it says being an adventure of your own choosing, but I made the mistake of, of putting on my blog, uh, I'm going on a choose your own adventure book tour. And I got this email from Choose LLC. And then I had to basically say, I am not going on a choose your own adventure book tour. I'm going on an adventure of your own choosing book tour. Right. Um, I didn't, you know, yeah. So um, yeah, what was uh, what was that about? And there was another. Um, we're going to be probably talking a bit about utopian fiction a little later, but there was cool. a, another um, utopian book that uh, you put out. Sorry, I don't, I don't have it in front of me. I don't have my notes. But a uh, country of ghosts. A country of ghosts. That's it. One. I, I haven't read it, yeah. but it looks right in my wheelhouse. So <laughs> um, yeah, tell me tell me a little about about that because that probably will inform a little bit about. Um, Lion and Barrow. Um, so the first book length fiction work I did was this adventure of your own choosing uh, called What Lies Beneath the Clock Tower. And at the time, kind of throughout most of the mid-aughts, I, uh, I did a lot of work in steampunk, um, which at the time a lot of us thought could have more radical potential than it really ended up holding on to. But a lot of us were using it as a vehicle to critique colonialism, but still get to have like goblins and giant steam powered things that blew up. And so I wrote, yeah, I wrote a, an interactive fiction book called What Lies Beneath the Clock Tower in which you're a, a drunken fop who is venturing beneath the undercity of France. And you haven't even, you're an expatriate who hasn't even bothered to learn the language and you get dragged into an anti-colonial struggle between goblins and gnomes. And it was mostly just fun. Uh, it was a lot of work to write. It was the, I mean, you know, it was the most ambitious project I had taken on to that point. Um, and I had to, uh, I wrote three quarters of it and then had to scrap it down to about one quarter of it and then rewrite most of all of it. But it was definitely a, a fun style to write in. and. So I finished that, and then I didn't finish anything sort of book length for a while. And then I wrote what is, in the end, uh, a long novella. Uh, originally, it started off as a, a regular length novella, and then it just kind of got longer, not quite to novel length, called A Country of Ghosts. And I wrote that book because one of my friends, Kate Katib, who lives in Baltimore, is an amazing organizer and activist and designer, um, she was basically telling me, she was challenging me. She said, you know, there's not enough utopian imaginings going on in anarchism in the far left. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she knew I was involved a lot in, in fiction. So basically she told me that 
I should write one. And, and I did, it took me a while. Um, once again, because it was, you know, kind of stepping up to be the, the hardest thing that I had yet written. Uh, and I learned a lot through the process of writing it and through the edits it went through and all of that. But it was basically my attempt to write out essentially what I think society should look like. Uh, but I, I was trying to not write a boring blueprint and I was trying not to, you know, there's all kinds of different utopian novels and I think some of them succeed as novels and some of them don't. Some of them only succeed as utopias. And, you know, obviously I'd much rather write something that succeeds as fiction. Um, and I think I succeeded, mm-hmm. but, you know, obviously that's, that's up to the readers. And, uh, just briefly, what what is the the blueprint? What is the utopian um, thing? <laughs> so I wrote about a country called Huron. Uh, that is it. It's secondary world fiction, which means that it doesn't take place on Earth. It takes place. I only learned this word after I finished this book. Um, it takes place on a, a different planet that's Earth-like, mm-hmm. um, and there's this country that used to just be. A, more of a territory and kind of formalized as a country when um, essentially anarchist revolutionaries have failed, have lost a revolution and had to flee. And they were taken in by uh, a society of people who live in the mountains nearby. Uh, and then that society doesn't conceive of itself as a country at that time, but then essentially they need to like band together to defend themselves from you know, the neighboring colonial forces. So it's, it's a hybrid of the traditional culture of those mountains and these sort of like anarchist revolutionary ideas. And they create this country called Huron and in it, uh, essentially, you know, it's, it's a social anarchist society, but it's not incredibly organizationalist. It, um, Essentially, people are involved with what they want to be involved with. You know, there's not, you know, most waste management is done by individuals. You know, for example, like, you, you know, if you go to what looks like a restaurant, you still might, like, get up and wash the dishes after you, you know, drink your tea or whatever. Mm-hmm. And one of the other ideas that I, I toy around with in it, so there's an, there's an accord. There's the, the ten principles of Haran. And the the main joke that keeps coming up is that all of the characters refuse to know the ten principles. Uh, they all refuse because the whole point of the principles is to not subscribe to them like laws. And so everyone keeps joking about, you know, oh, you know, except when they go to the city, there's like both villages in the city and the city is like slightly more, people are slightly more traditionally organized there. But then one of the things that happens is that there's an entire other town outside of Haran that is basically refugees from Haran who don't agree with the sort of forced pro-social nature of Haran and they basically refuse to accept the accord and they refuse to abide by these like don't call them rules rules and so it's sort of the anti-social anarchists also have a place and one of the main things that the book tries to do is talk about the balance between those positions uh, because personally I'm very interested in societies that allow for multiple societies. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, you know, solidarity between diverse groups of people rather than like 
uh, forced unification. Um, so yeah, that's 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 her on. Cool. Oh, that's a really interesting idea. I've, I I did a big old thing on utopian fiction back in university years ago, and uh, I never. Oh, cool. I don't think I've ever encountered a like a multiple uh, a society that actually allows multiple viewpoints like that, even in some of the very um, very straight ahead utopias like. Um, uh, news from nowhere and uh, uh, mm-hmm. burning world and uh, stuff like that. Uh, the dispossessed definitely. That society could have benefited from having some more um, <laughs> choices available to people because and that's what kind of the book. Yeah, about. The guy doesn't feel quite at home there. Checks out yeah. the capitalist world and it's uh, not his liking. But um, yeah, there was a bit more um, possibilities for him than. I think that would be a more utopian utopia than a ambiguous utopia, which what um, the Glenn called it. Yeah. Yeah. What's it do? Yeah, the only one I can think of that does it is uh, the Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk, but she doesn't. Yeah, I haven't read that. Go. She doesn't go to those societies, those other societies, but she kind of references them. I think. Um, oh, uh, Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin kind of does it, but it's a very is a very different society from anything. It's more like yeah. kind of pre-civilized um, or post-civilized. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, the, the, uh, it's something I've done on the show before. That there definitely needs to be more utopian fiction because we're having this kind of resurgence of all kinds of uh, left of the middle thoughts right now. And um, yeah, <laughs> don't quite know where we're going. We know what we don't want. And we know some basics, but uh, no one's got the end point in mind. And you'd think that to make a political philosophy of any kind, you just think of an ideal society, figure out how to get there. It's, uh, yeah, that's kind of that's that's definitely my take. And yeah, we need even if we don't reach the shining city on the horizon, it just it gives us a direction to walk, you know. Yeah. Cool. So um, that kind of brings us to. Uh, Daniel Kane, and um, mm-hmm. from what I've uh, read in other interviews, you've kind of had a a long process of getting this all together, and it uh, started and restarted, and there were major changes along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, before we go into that, why don't you just uh, synopsize the books? Uh, just tell us, sure. you know, who is Daniel Kane? Daniel Kane. Uh, so I have a series that's a it's a duology at the moment. It may or may not end up um, expanding. Uh, the Danielle Kane series. The first book is The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion. The second book is The Barrel Will Send What It May. And they're both novellas, so they're both very short. Um, I think combined, they're about as long as A Country of Ghosts, just still shorter than you know pretty much any novel you pick up. Um, but the Danielle Kane books are about a traveler in her late 20s who doesn't realize that there's magic in the world and she's basically kind of getting sick of her wandering life and kind of looking for a sense of home and is trying to track down why her best friend killed himself. And so she goes to the last place he lived, which is the squatted town called Freedom, Iowa. And when when she gets there, she realizes that part of the reason that this this town that operates along anarchist principles is sort of another utopian imagining, although 
in this case it's it's run through with this dystopian element uh they've essentially like basically witches in the town have summoned a demon called Ulixi that's a three antlered deer that kills and eats anyone who tries to wield power over other people and so it's basically this like forced anarchism and it's been going well for a couple years but all of a sudden it's it's going badly just when Danielle Cohen arrives and so it's a anarchists basically trying to figure out how to unsummon this this force they brought into the world uh and then the sequel um basically they continue on as sort of both paranormal investigators and they're being hunted by the law because of some stuff that happens in the first book um and it becomes kind of more of an ensemble cast uh it's either been referred to as um uh buffy without the humdrum of suburbia is what my editor first called it or uh basically kind of punk rock scooby-doo both and that's kind of what drew me to them because you know that <laughs> were, you, were you ever a buffy fan when you're a kid or, or you know i i wasn't but it it was Ooh. because of this like dumb knee-jerk reaction where uh my siblings who i'm very good friends with now were really into buffy and i didn't want to have anything to do with the stuff they were into because they were they were theater kids and i was a weirdo because the theater kids weren't weird enough for me or something. I don't know. Uh, so I never really watched Buffy. And I think by the time I, I would have, it it kind of felt too late. I've, I've tried watching yeah, some Buffy, and I don't, uh, I don't have anything well. bad to say about it. But it's as far as just weeding goes, I'll stick to Firefly. Yeah. Well, maybe not, because he's kind of, kind of a little bit... Uh, I don't want to use the word yeah. because that's been done to death. But, uh, yeah, he's, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I... I I was a huge Buffy fan when I was a kid. Massive. I, cool. I, I, I literally watched the very last episode while the police were in my house. Um, <laughs> and um, they'd been called to a domestic thing. Luckily, it involved me. But yeah, they were walking around my yeah. house while I was watching the very last episode. And <laughs> I'm terrified of going back to it now because uh, I don't want to realize that it was either bad or really, really, that word again, problematic. Uh, which I think yeah. it probably was because uh, you know I don't want to realize I wasted literally like a year of my combined of my youth on this show that turned out to be so terrible. <laughs> but uh, I mean that's just what growing up is is finding out you know, all of your childhood. Uh, except yeah, Fraggle Rock, time. Fraggle Rock holds up. I've uh, literally never seen Fraggle Rock. For some reason they never played in the UK. I don't know if it like translates badly. But uh, yeah, no, uh, no fraggles growing up. Muppet Show, fine. I don't know. No, no fraggles. Huh? Yeah, yeah. No, those weird cultural things. But, um, yeah. But let's get back to Daniel Kane because the the like mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the ensemble cast is a pretty strong one, a really strong one actually. And kind of why it works is there's no Buffy in it. There's no central. There's a central character, but there's no. There's no central person in the group, you know what I mean? In a way that yeah. Buffy was always orientated around Buffy and helping her. But um, yeah, you know, I what, what can you tell people about these about these characters without being too too spoilery? Because um, yeah, they are interesting dudes. Uh, let's see. So Danielle Kane is sort of, in some ways, because she's the first person point of view. She's maybe the most blank slate. You know, she's kind of 
almost has the least personality on the page in some ways. Um, and then there's Bryn, who is uh, probably, I would say, demisexual and is uh, kind of a, a street fighting woman who, you know, has had a rough life and has face tattoos and uh, likes taking care of her friends and is a stick and poke tattoo artist. And then there's uh, the days, Thursday and Doomsday, and they're both um, they're both sort of goths who got swept up into like anarchist squatter life, and so they they come from a slightly more, in some ways, traditional like cultural backgrounds than than like the sort of punks they're hanging out with. But um, yeah, I like how but many, uh, they definitely have their own. What's up? I like when the first book they have. Um... Like it's basically very normal, boring suburban life in the middle of this um, sort of Alex's commune. There's a yeah. nice house, and it's all. Yeah. They're, they're the only power couple, and yeah, everyone say, else is, you know, power not couple. on that page where that's a thing. Yeah. Um, and they're also and, uh, magicians, right? The, well, do you use the word magician? Yeah. Well, Doomsday yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, she's the only real good magician in the books, I guess. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and oh, uh, last character. And then Vulture. Vulture, yeah. I noticed, um, uh, I may cut this out because it's dissing on another publication, uh, but um, in uh, uh, Ver- uh, Verge.com, they they wrote about your book, but they, they conflated uh, Thursday and Vulture into one character when they wrote about your book. They called Thursday like a hacker yeah, or something. Was, uh, I've run into this problem a couple times where. I never really thought that this was, I don't quite understand it. Um, people will review my books sometimes really highly and then misname the main character or like, you know, one reviewer with like this, this teenage girl. And I'm like, yeah. huh, it's like really explicit that, that she's in her late twenties. But hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's been this interesting thing to kind of figure out what people pick up on. It's actually kind of particularly yeah, maybe don't put this in. Um, uh, particularly interesting to conflate Doomsday and Vulture because um, they're the two uh, men of color, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, so then there's, there's Vulture distinct. who... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it was such a weird one because they're very distinct characters. And uh, Yeah. Apart from the both being men of color, that's like the only thing they have in common. But, uh, yeah, well, pretty much the he pronoun and uh, and not being white. Yeah, but uh, well, that's the Verge's problem, not not yours. Yeah. Um, so then there's Vulture, who's a a trans man who uh, is kind of the. <laughs> I actually had this problem when I when I edited when the editor looked at the second book. They were like, "This this is great. I love this book. You made Vulture too awesome." <laughs> And it, it kind of was like I was in the first draft at least I was kind of playing favorites with Vulture because yeah, uh, Vulture is going to be a kind of fan favorite one. In that kind yeah, of, uh, yeah. Uh, is the bizarro hacker who stays up all night and also just wants to take pictures of everything for Instagram and uh, kind of has the the most oddball reactions to most of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he's. I don't know. I I think the thing that happened for me is that I ended up loving all of the characters kind of more than I expected. I was really nervous to try and write an ensemble cast, especially for such a short book. But 
I've been trying to think about ways to write outside of, I've been trying to think of ways to write that actually reflect the culture that I'm part of mm-hmm. and the culture that I'm part of, you know, especially when there's like problems or something, we kind of roll deep. We like, you know, the affinity group model is a, a very common one. And we, uh, and I, I wanted not to just basically, I mean, obviously Danielle Kane is the protagonist and we're seeing it through her eyes, but I wanted to, you know, not put her in charge and, and all of these things. And it's actually something that that's come up. I've seen some workshops, for example, um, I'm going to forget who it was. This one uh, Latinx author was saying, you know, like how fucking white and middle class are all of these novels where, you know, none of the characters ever like call their parents to like, you know, bring their family in to like help them with problems or something like that. And, uh, and while I haven't had family come up a ton, uh, you know, cause it's kind of this fairly sort of punk rock orphan kind of story, um, they do rely on each other really heavily and also no one's in charge. And it's kind of fun to play with the tension of the characters who sort of wish they were in charge as they try to deal with how that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, the, the ensemble aspect worked, worked really well. In this. I like, and yeah, I like these guys. I could see hanging out with them. Um, <laughs> cool. With the exception, of course, that they get tangled up in demons and necromancy. <laughs> I don't need in my life right now. I got too much going on already. Um, <laughs> yeah, but if but if that was actually real, wouldn't you want to go? <laughs> wouldn't that sense of curiosity take over your common sense and you'd go hang out with them anyway? Well, I don't want to disemboweled by a deer. Like, that's, that's not the way I go, yeah. I go out. I, like slowly in my sleep, not turned inside out <laughs> by a forest god. Or, no, that's that's not the way I go. Yeah, it's me again. Uh, Okay, I'm going to go straight into a song by Nomadic War Machine. That's Margaret Gilroy's uh, musical project, if you haven't been listening. It's really good. It's a song called The Fields Lay Fallow. It's goth, electronica, spooky, distorted. It's really good. Uh, Check it out. And there'll be Femi Nazgul music coming up, like at the end of the episode. You should stay around for that because it's really good.
but um, <laughs> the, the magic in this book is is really interesting because it's not um, magic exists in this world. There are, I, I think, you give the number of like a few thousand magicians in the world, something like that. Yeah. Like an incredibly rare thing that most people, everyone, doesn't believe it exists. They very few people who try it get it right. Um, and yeah, it was a it was a an approach I kind of haven't seen before. It, it kind of reminded me of um, a book called The Magicians, and there's also a TV show mm-hmm. based on it. it. Yeah, one I really like because it it makes magic incredibly hard. Like you have to be a yeah. genius and study for years in this grad school to even do the magic. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was a that was an approach I really I really liked. And um, it kind of reminded me of this book as well, how magic is incredibly powerful. Like, one guy can literally raise the dead. Uh, you can yeah. summon a demon who's unstoppable, who kills any bad person. Uh, and it's it's rare, luckily. So what's the, <laughs> what's the kind of, uh, I guess, the politics behind that? It's... Um, yeah, I mean, what what do you want to say about the the magic the, in in the book? I mean, so on one level, I knew that the magic had to be really rare because I was setting it in the real world, you know, and um, and I know people. I'm someone who's kind of agnostic about magic. Uh, I don't quite believe in it the way that a lot of my friends uh, believe in it. But I, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of people draw power from their magical practices, uh, usually kind of on a, a more personal level, like you know the power to uh, control their own mindset, you know. And so I was trying to reflect that, but figure out how to make it bigger and how, and so I, I kind of hit upon this idea of the, the endless spirits, uh, the. Mm-hmm. The magical system in this world is that all magic comes from the ability to draw power from a kind of a specific set of demons. And if you're not following that particular set of practices, you're just not actually going to do magic. And you can kind of stumble upon a lot of it through the back door. So there's a lot of like sort of pseudo practitioners who can kind of do things here or there or things that work for them, but can't be replicated. Um, but I also, uh, I mean, so magic is power and power is fucked up, you know, like one of the whole points of, you know, I'm obsessed to bring everything back to Lord of the Rings. It's like the ring of power must be thrown into a volcano, not, um, you know, left in the hands of men. And so it, you know, there's this interesting thing where when I first wrote it, I didn't realize I was writing something that probably closer to a horror novel or novella than a urban fantasy novella, you know, in most urban fantasy magic kind of just operates like technology. Um, and, and in this it's, it's, you know, it's demons and it's these things. And it's, I didn't write it trying to be trying to write horror, but I, I realize on some level that if you introduce magic into the real world, you just actually create horror because you're just, giving people power. So, uh, so I kind of rolled with that. Um, and also, you know, the, the politics 
you know, the first book is, is very much about the ways in which revolutionaries can turn their backs on, on, you know, my mind, real revolution is about disseminating power uh, to everybody rather than you know, centralizing it. And the way that revolutionaries turn their backs on the revolution by, uh, by taking power and keeping it. And so that is what, you know, this demon represents, uh, Ulixie is, you know, the ability to outsource your decision-making about right and wrong, even if Ulixie is right, you know, like, um, and it's this kind of weird tension where, you know, a lot of my friends read it and they're like, yeah, but Ulixie's awesome. And, and I, I mean, I have, I got Ulixie tattooed on my hand, um, you know, but it, it works when Ulixie stays a metaphor, it's great. But as soon as Ulixie is actually brought into the world, it's, it's, it's not so good. Mm. Yeah. I, I had a kind of back and forth about <laughs> this uh, creature can, anytime someone's bad, the creature turns up and kills them. That's, yeah. um, that's you know, so tempting in real life. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of reminded me of the whole, um, a few years ago, the whole punching Nazis thing. You know, should we just mm-hmm. go up and clock Richard Spencer? The answer is yes in that particular case. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, the the idea that uh, you know we we can decide who's right and wrong and exact punishments on them, um, and this whole debate about whether it's right for Antifa or anyone to um, wield that kind of power over people's lives, whether it's you know, knocking the teeth out or whether it's like making them lose a job or potentially even killing them. Right. And uh, yeah, that kind of, um, I guess with the, the writing and publishing of it kind of would coincide with that um, whole debate and that whole thing happening. It's, um, yeah, that's kind of, and the, the people who were kind of pro Ulysses were, they kind mm-hmm. of reminded me of the always punch a Nazi no matter what um, <laughs> thing. Which is, I'm probably on the always punch a Nazi yeah, page yeah. myself. Um, and I think that the difference is that uh, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, so it takes like free speech for Nazis. You know, I, I'm, I'm against the government uh, limiting free speech, but I'm in favor of us as individuals being willing to make decisions to um, prevent Nazi organizing, you know, or, uh, you know, I, if, like, I think I would be against if there was, you know, just here's the anarchist police and the entire world is anarchist and there's this police force that runs around and like, you know, punches anyone who has bad politics, like, you know, that would probably be bad. But I, I think that one of the ways uh, that we do take power for ourselves is being willing to exert small amounts of power over other people kind of on this like individual and decentralized level. I think, but I, I don't know. Yeah. If it, yeah, individual decentralized makes more sense. Like, um, I don't know if you saw this recently, but there was a, you know, the um, far right or alt right, uh, I guess, writer or journalist, um, Milo Yiannopoulos went into a bar mm-hmm. in New York, and it just happened that there was a BSA meeting going on at that bar, and they, <laughs> mm-hmm. of all the bars and all the all the places in all the world, he goes into the BSA bar. 
But uh, yeah, they right. shouted at him until he ran away and then made a whiny blog post about how he yeah. feared for his life against, I think it was like 20 lesbians. We were famously <laughs> bloodthirsty DSA people. And, um, yeah. So that that was a, a good example of getting it right. You know, make make yeah. a make a horrible, horrible human being feel bad. And I'm yeah. sure he went to another bar and had a lovely time. At least he felt bad for a little while. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um let's so at the end of um I don't want to give too much spoilers here, but at the end of uh, Barrow. Um, mm-hmm. there's kind of some stuff set up for later with this kind of I think magical feds you call them there's um, mm-hmm. like a, a bureaucracy that kind of keeps magic in check and um, yeah, it, I mean have you written another book in the series are you going to write it is it is it definitely happening for sure I want it to be it is not happening for sure it'll probably happen uh, what, it, what what happened was I wrote the first book as a standalone and pitched it to Tor.com, and I intentionally put kind of a hook at the end of the first book where, you know, it is a complete plot cycle. Uh, you know, the plot is complete on its own, but it it clearly, like, wants to, you, you know, it leaves the reader wanting to hear more about what happens next. Um, so that was a, a cynical move made because I wanted to write a series. And, but, you know, got asked to send a, a standalone book. And so I sent a standalone book. They bought two. They bought, they were like, we're buying this and its sequel. And, um, and at the moment, the, the publisher is probably not going to pick it up for additional books, but the way the contract was written, um, allows me to continue to write them and self-publish them or seek other publication probably. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely something I'm, considering it's mostly a, a sort of time prioritization it's harder for me at this point to prioritize the third book in that when i you know i have a, a work in progress novel that i i really need to finish and send to my agent and you know have my like debut novel because all my work up to this point is novella length and so i've been kind of not allowing myself to write non-contracted books until I finish this work in progress novel. But, but hopefully, I mean, I, I have, uh, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head, either five or six books roughly plotted out to create a sort of a, a single cycle, almost like a season of TV. It's one thing I like about the novella series concepts that's been coming back into vogue is this idea that you can write, episode like episodic short fiction that you can compile into these like larger arcs uh kind of in a similar way that i feel right now i think that um in the 90s when i was growing up tv was pretty garbage and movies had much better plotting right but i think right now tv series have really picked up on this idea that you can create these uh individual episodes that tie together into seasons and create these longer arcs and basically this beautiful storytelling method. And I think that the novella series is kind of fiction picking up on that. Yeah. So what's your, uh, what's your novel about? That's a um, big thing. I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm too shy to say because I'm terrified that if I don't finish this book soon and get it out in front of uh, editors, someone else is going to write a really similar book for it. Oh. 
Um, so I, I'm at the moment I'm uh, I, I can't say. Okay, fine, no problem. Um, yeah, I, I wrote a 500-page novel about um, a authoritarian dictator who's also a reality TV star um, becoming president of the United States. <laughs> and um, yeah, I probably, I probably should have worked on that a little bit quicker. And uh, if I yeah. maybe got that done in like 2014, I'd uh, probably be doing pretty well right now. But um, yeah, that kind of kind of screwed me up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually had a similar thing happen. I like my work in progress novel before this one. Uh, my current one is Fantasy Second World. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that I was working on before was like 2030 or so. And and it was based on some things I got totally wrong. I thought the right wing was going to come to power by co-opting identity issues. You know? I thought it was going to be like I mean, all women units in the army and like basically this like nationalist version of identity politics is what I thought they were going to say. It's like, we love multiculturalism as long as you're a fucking American citizen, you know? Um, like and liberalism on steroids. But instead, yeah, like that combined with, but closer to like a actual far right um, and a, a nationalist identity. That was like what I was like basing this goddamn book on. And then I was like, oh no, instead they just doubled down on pure traditional racism, yep. you know? And, uh, so, I don't know. Uh, so I had to scrap it. Start this other book. I've, I'm sorry though. You got much further into yours, and I got it fine. Yeah, it was almost ten years. Oh well, it happens. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, and I mean, in addition to being an awesome author, you're also an awesome musician. Like twice, you have two different. <laughs> I, I only just listened to Nomadic War Machine yesterday for the first time. Uh, I'm not generally an electronica guy, but um, I can appreciate mm-hmm. it. I, I can dig what you're doing there. Uh, Feminine's goal, really like. Um, cool. So, yeah, why don't you um, just tell people about and pitch them. Uh, get, get some fans. Get... Sure. Um, so Nomadic War Machine is a project that I've had for a while. Uh, the first album came out at the end of 2010. Um, and then hasn't done much since then. Uh, released an album called I Have a Gun, Give Me All the Money in the Register. Beautiful and, title. Yeah, that was actually designed so that I could sell t-shirts, but then I got really, I felt really guilty. So I only sold like two t-shirts and then I was like, wait, no, don't buy these. That's a bad idea. What are you doing? <laughs> Stop buying these. Um, and, and that's a sort of dark electronic, you know, I, I grew up listening to a lot of goth music and that's like kind of one of my main influences in, in general. Uh, and so that's a dark electronic project that currently has been actually going in more in a, a pop and dance direction. And I have a new album coming out uh, called Always Forever that I think I'm will be hopefully in the next month or two. All the music's written. I'm just waiting to fundraise for mastering and things like that. But then uh, this winter... I started a project called Feminaz Ghoul, which is a solo black metal project where I basically, well, you know, I've, I've listened to metal for a really long time also, especially black metal with a little bit of like, uh, so like folk metal and, um, I don't know, Viking metal and whatever other types of metal pretty much. And, and I always kind of wanted to do a solo black metal project, 
and I, I wrote most of what became the first track on that album four four years ago or something like that. And but I didn't have any vocals on it, and because I, I didn't know how to sing that way, and so I basically gave up on the project for a long time. I was like, oh, one day I'll you know find a singer and a guitarist, and but I was always traveling, and I couldn't really get a band together. And then this winter, I was in kind of a a dark space for a little while, and I processed it by just writing music. And in the process of doing that, I was trying to find uh, synthesized singing software that met my standards. And I, I failed at that. But what I did figure out is that I found a way to um, synthesize black metal screaming. And so I suddenly had a way to do a complete um, do complete black metal project. And basically oh, yeah. I sat down and I was like, well, what's up? By by synthesize, you mean like process your vocals to make it sound more? Dark? Oh no, no, there's, it, there's no there's no microphone involved. What? It, so it's like vocaloid, but metal. Yeah. Wow. I, okay, I, I wouldn't have told. I couldn't have like. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that by listening to it. I thought that was that was a person. Yeah. Some effect. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of waiting for everyone to like. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons where everyone is like running to call everyone fake metal or not true cult or whatever, you know, and. And the fact that I don't sing on it is probably going to be a sticking point for some people. Yeah, that, that, um, that's cool. That's like <laughs> taking Hatsune Miku and making it metal. That, that, that's awesome. That's, uh, um, that's like that guy, uh, Sacred Sun. He was a, another solo black metal musician. And his album cover is just a picture of him on his holiday, on his vacation, just wearing sunglasses <laughs> in front of a nice sunset. And everyone got pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the one genre of black metal that I like is trolling people with, through the genre. Yeah. That, that's, that makes yeah, I mean, that's kind of part of the whole thing is a little bit me trolling, you know, uh, with the name of it and, and all of that. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, you know, the the t-shirts, the, the band logo is in pink on the t-shirts. Uh, it's in gold on the album cover, but uh, it just looks better in gold. And but the album is called... Uh, like, you know, I got this... Go ahead, Ty. Oh, the album is called uh, The Age of Men Is Over? Yeah. yeah. Which is yeah. also a Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> I know. Uh, and Nazgul's uh, also Lord of the Rings. But, uh, yeah. Dragon thingies. But um, yeah, <laughs> it, it is really, really, really good black metal as well. It works as black metal. It's not like... Thanks. Uh, it's not trolling as in it's bad. It's actually a really decent black metal record. And a genre yeah, doesn't you. tend to produce that many. And... Um, yeah, it, it's really fucking good, um, and people should listen to it. And that's basically all I have to say cause, about that, because it's just <laughs> go to Bandcamp and listen to it. It's really, really good. And buy one of those T-shirts, because, you know. So you're coming up on the release of a new Nomadic War Machine album, and you said you're going to kickstart that? I think so. Uh, it depends on... No, so uh, I like both my music projects. Nomadic War Machine is kind of a harder fight to get to find its audience um, because black metal has kind of a a built-in audience. And then also, you know, um, uh, a lot of people listen to it because they think the name is clever, you know. And, and so Nomadic War Machine is in a lot of ways, it'll be more of an uphill fight to kind of like get it 
heard. Uh, I think it's good music. I'm, I'm proud of it. You know, I've been writing that kind of music for a very long time. Um, but so if I kickstarted, it's probably going to be pretty modest. It's just that I, I literally have been sitting on this album, um, all of the tracks since last November. And I just haven't been able to put it out because I haven't been able to afford mastering. And I haven't been able to, you know, I was like, well, I want to do this other stuff. I want to like, you know, put out a tape and, and some other things. And I just don't have the money for it. Uh, whereas black metal is so, it's like allowed to be raw. So I didn't get the Feminine School album mastered. Although if I do a full length, uh, I, I will. But, you know, for that EP, I, I felt like it was fine. Um, so I'm probably going to kickstart it uh, unless I, you know, randomly come across the money I need to just get the merch together. But uh, I have a music video coming out for it um, probably in a couple weeks whenever I get the Kickstarter up that I think, I think actually fans of Feminine School like too. It's, it's um, for being a goth song. It's a very metal video okay. uh, swords and spears and uh, witchy stuff and attacking men and, you know, fun things like that. Um, but yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, tweet that at me. I'll, I'll retweet it. And, um, yeah, I look forward to seeing that. Um, so yeah. Um, people at home go read two or more, um, Margaret Kildroy books because they're all really good. The ones I've, well, two I've read have been really good. I'm sure they're right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, listen to Feminazgo if you like metal, listen to Nomadic War Machine if you like electronic stuff that's kind of also in the metal aesthetic almost. It's dark and it's creepy and it's weird. So, and, <laughs> and I liked it. And I've, I, don't think I, I don't think I own any electronic albums except Apex Twin. And I think Orcs <laughs> Canada is, is in there as, as well. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much rockist. I'm kind of a boring white guy who only listens to stuff with guitars and hip hop. <laughs> so. But um, yeah, well, people, people well that's why you left England and came back, came to <laughs> to um, North America, mm-hmm. Canada to be specific. Cause, you know, yeah, yeah, but like, I just in my head, I I imagine every time I'm in anywhere. In, in the UK or Europe, there's a lot more electronic music than there is here. Yeah. And here, I think it's a lot more rock-focused. Uh, there's some okay rock music happening in Britain. I mean, I don't particularly like that. I'm not trying to talk too. trash on it. I'm just mean like in terms of like walking down the street. Well, oh, yeah, definitely like too. people's culture is very much like raves and dances. Uh, yeah. Rock is, yeah, it's not as a, not as a big thing. But... Um, it's not like I've come to Calgary and uh, found a paradise of amazing metal. It's uh, all country music <laughs> here. It's just, just country music and stoner music, and that's that's literally it. Oh, okay. Actually, I, I shouldn't talk trash because there's some there's some decent bands in this town, but um, yeah, not too many. A lot of country music. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how you got that nickname, uh, Calgary. Cowtown is the nickname, apparently. All right. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's just north north Texas. And it's uh <laughs> I'm very out of place here. But uh oh well. Um so yeah, folks at home get into uh Margaret Kiljoy stuff. It's really, really all awesome. And um Yeah, thanks for having me on here. Yeah, no problem at all. Um yeah, it's been great talking to you. 
Hey, um, okay, gonna play uh, the first song of the only existing uh, Femi Nazgul EP. Uh, the EP itself, as I mentioned, is called The Age of Men Is Over. The song is called To The Throat. Uh, calling something The Age of Men Is Over is fucking cool. Uh, this is a really good release. And um, as I said before, do the like thing and um, leave reviews. And I want to keep this like free, no Patreon stuff for as long as possible. And um, then I start charging you. So you know, give me good reviews while you still can before I start asking for money. Uh, okay, here's Femi Nazgul. Oh, and I'm going to be back and next week. going to be doing a Grand Hotel Abyss. Uh, it's a really amazing book about the Frankfurt School. And after that, hopefully, I'm um, going to be talking about The Pisces by Melissa Broder because that has fish sex in it. Mer sex. Sex between a human and a mer person. And we're going to learn whether Murdick is good. So, um, yeah, stick around for both of those. And the best way to stick around would be to subscribe. So, win-win, really, uh, for everyone. And, um, yeah, here's some Feminaz goal. Thank you.